This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. So, folks, it's 2019. We're one year away from celebrating the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Women got the right to vote. We are one year away from the election of a record number of women to Congress. We're a few years into Me Too and other moments of empowerment. Where on an imagined clock of equality do we now stand? Are we striking midnight? Are we ready to go? Or is it before then? Sylvia, you're, you're in charge of a lot of young women. Where do you think we are right now? Uh, great question. I when you think about how many women are in leadership, whether they're CEOs of large corporations or even in Congress, you, don't re- you realize we're not even half, right? But you're right about the Girl Scouts. Um, half of all female elected officials in America? Girl Scouts, right, yes. <laughs> that class that you talked about. This is not the, a Girl Scout, I just want to uh, say, yeah. I love having the Girl Scouts here. It can be. It yeah, can. It's cool. <laughs> um, so that record class of Congress, 60% of them, Girl Scouts. That's right. And we are doubling down on civics and democracy badges. We're making sure, in fact, we're the only youth nonprofit in America that is focused on civics and democracy, really teaching girls about our democratic process, how to get involved, how to make the world a better place. And we even have a badge called Finding Common Ground. Okay, but what what are you teaching them about where things are? Is it you know, pick your favorite metaphor. Are we glass half full, half empty? Are we, are we, are we approaching equality? Are we at equality? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Sylvia, we're finish up. Working, the others. working to make sure the world's a better place and that you've got the right skills to create the positive change you want to see in the world. And if you just look at the numbers, we still have a long way to go. And so we want to make sure we've got a whole bunch of the rising generation of America. Those girls have the skills, the talent, the courage, and the confidence to go on and run for office and to be leaders. Either one of you want to weigh in on where we are now? I think, you know, the way that I would frame it is I think if you're going to use time, I would think about time zones. I think that the way that um, equality meets folks really depends on where they sit. Uh, and so some folks are getting closer. If you look at, for example, the, the pay wage gap, which we're still a long way from, that, is, that can be distinguished by identity, right? So uh, there, is a, there is a pay wage gap for white women, there's a pay wage gap that's larger for black women, and then even larger for Latino women, and then even larger for First Nation women, right? And so I would think about it as time zones, that like our role is to make sure everyone gets there, but we're not all getting there at the same time. So it's a rolling, a, a rolling a set of waves somehow. Yeah, and, and I guess my... And breaks down in the sense that I don't want it to be time zoned, right? right? I want it to, for us all to arrive, but I would say that we're not all at the same um, place. So not only are we not there yet, but different groups of us are not where other groups of us That's are. Right. Well, and I think it's important, absolutely, um, you know, Lynn, to acknowledge the progress we've made. That's right. You know, that we did have an unprecedented number of women run for office, um, in the 2018 cycle. And yet, even if we just look at, you know, who actually um, kind of declared and qualified in their respective districts to run for Congress, 
even though we had an unprecedented number of women running, we still weren't a quarter of the people running. Right. Right. Yeah. right. So like enormous progress, but not close to parity. Right. right. And so I do think in these conversations, it's important absolutely to understand how often white women are further ahead than African-American women, Latino women, you know, First Nation and indigenous women. And yet, oftentimes when we kind of celebrate progress, I think that can obscure how far all of us are yeah. to equality. How, how far we have come or how far we have to go? How far we have to go. How far we still have to and go. I, and I also think, so I, I would say I'm, I'm an optimist um, because I think it's the only really moral choice to make to believe that things can get better. Um, otherwise, like, why would any of us get up every day? <laughs> um, and, yet, and yet also to recognize, you know, in this moment where um, women's fundamental human rights to make our own choices about our bodies are under attack, and I would argue even assault, around our country, um, we have to have you know, a clear-eyed view of not only kind of where we urgently must go and kind of the solidarity that must be required to get there, um, but also the age-old challenges like Tam talked about of you know, including girls and keeping girls engaged in STEM fields um, so that Sally is indeed you know, not only the, the first but one of only many. Well, let, let, let me... But you, 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 where let we me, go backwards, too. Let me pick up on something you started to say, or you just said, which is where we are now. How do you explain the momentum of what is going on now? There does appear, you know, I mean, I was doing this in the 1970s, and we thought we were so cool, and look at what we did. And here we are again, um, a few years later, doing much of the same thing all over again. How do you explain the renewed momentum of woman power today? Everything from, uh, you know, we've been on the war path for centuries, but there does seem to feel as if something different is happening right now. Am I, am I right about that? Do you feel it or not? Well, you know, I think certainly, you know, Lynn, given that you've been covering these issues, your perspective is as valuable as any of ours, like on the on the panel. Um, but can I ask a question? Yeah, oh, yeah. Who knows when the final state ratified the Nineteenth Amendment? Don't Google it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's any shout it out if you know it. Nineteen eighty four. Right? So 1984, Mississippi became the last state to ratify the 19th Amendment. And, and I just thought of that because you, you pointed out that thankfully, you know, uh, a plurality of states ratified it in um, November of 1920. Eight million American women voted, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and yet, it would still take another 64 years for all 50 states to ratify the 19th Amendment. And it would take another 40 years within that 60 for women of color and women of Absolutely. various ethnicities to get the right to vote as well. Well, and we see active voter disenfranchisement right. today around the country. So I think all of that in a kind of messy and yet painfully authentic way answers your question, Lynn, in that we do have 
um, momentum in many ways. And yet we know, um, we can never take progress for granted, which is something that I think Credit Scott King was really good about reminding us of. And I think about that every day that every generation has to defend progress and try to advance it. Yeah, and exactly. Uh, thank you for saying that last point because that was uh, sort of where I was going to pick up that you know every generation has to fight their battles, right? And mm-hmm. we are going to be women of varied persuasions and backgrounds and identities forever in, in time. That's just the way that uh, nature set it up. And so I think every every generation has an awakening that they feel like they need to do work. And thankfully, you know, we can stand on the shoulders of giants, and you know, we don't have to start from suffrage, right? We can move to something else. But I think it's 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 both uh, historical and imperative that each generation find their voice and say a thing and affirm the thing that they want to say. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to point to in the question you ask is that I don't think it's actually that we have to inspire girls to go into STEM or science. Uh, it's in there, you know, they're, they're humans and they're curious, just like any other human is curious. I think what we have to do is a better job at removing barriers that, that push them out, right? Um, Bravo. Yep. And, and I think that language, that language is important because we talk so much about, you know, people ask me all the time, Jadida, you know, as the first, blah, 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 do you feel like that <laughs> inspires folks to do a thing? And I'm like, no, I feel like I am just a case in point that it can be done. But I'm not attracting anybody to this. I know girls, there was a little girl that was eight I met uh, who drew me a logarithmic colored picture of the night sky. The bigger the star was, the brighter it was in the sky, and the smaller it was. She was eight, and she wanted to be an astronomy professor. I didn't convince her of that. She just wanted to. My job is to make sure she gets there. So I think there's a... not Removing the barrier. Yeah, there's a distinction. So the the stated goal of of this event is um, how women can help lead our nation to a better future. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's obvious. It's daunting. But let's break it down a little bit. What this is, this is heresy, I know. Why women? What can we do better? Oh, my gosh. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know one of the things um, is, in Girl Scouts, we love the great outdoors. You know about our iconic entrepreneurship program, a.k.a. cookies, right? <laughs> Leadership, but STEM. And we are really on a tear in terms of providing a lot more hands-on STEM experiences for girls. And just in the last three years, almost 100 STEM and outdoor badges. This year, another 48. And there are everything from robotics, coding, design thinking, uh, cybersecurity. And the reason we're doing that is because the world is being rewritten line by line, algorithm by algorithm. And if we don't have girls and women writing the code, designing the specifications, if we don't have them as marketeers, as lawyers, who understand and not intimidated by it, we're going to be written out of the world. And we need to have girls and women at the table. We have to be, as they say in the Hamilton play, in the room where it happens, (laughs) right? But you have to have that confidence. And, you know, one of the things is we have robotics badges from girls age five all the way to 18. And even if you don't, want to follow a career and be an engineer in STEM, maybe you'll be a marketeer or you'll maybe be a lawyer and you'll come across something and you'll say, this hasn't been designed for women. And somebody will say, it's too tough. We have to reprogram a sensor. And I want her to say, reprogram a sensor. I did that in middle school with my Girl Scout robotics. (laughs) It's not a big deal. But right now, we don't have enough girls and women who have not just that technical background, the technical literacy, 
and that courage and confidence to say and to make sure that women are included. Tell me about what got you going. Who inspired you? What obstacles did you face along the way? So what inspired me is one day uh, I was camping with Girl Scouts and I had just finished eating a s'more, my first ever s'more. So I was sort of in this... Already sh- memorable. Already <laughs> memorable. Yeah, sugar bliss. And uh, my troop leader saw me looking at the stars. And she pointed out that there are stars, there were constellations in the planets. And I had no idea. I thought these were just twinkly lights. And that really sparked something. And later on, she encouraged me to earn my science badge. And I did that by making an Estes rocket. And I discovered gravity... Because hey. my rocket would not leave the desert sand. <laughs> so, so wait what, a minute. Wait a minute. The books have it wrong. It was you who discovered gravity. No, no, no. <laughs> but I'm like, why is my rocket not going up? What is this invisible force? Uh, so I got fascinated. And I never wanted to be an astronaut. But I got fascinated on how do you break gravity's grip. And then uh, obstacles along the way. Who's seen the movie Hidden Figures? Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Now, when you're watching that movie, there's that memorable bathroom scene, right? Okay. Okay. Well, I watched that movie and I thought they at least had a bathroom. You see, my first job as a test engineer, they didn't even have a bathroom for me. And so what I did is I problem solved and I figured out where the closest place there were that was a women's bathroom and I brought a bike in. And for six weeks, I drank a little water. (laughs) So at lunch, I could ride my bike to go to the bathroom. And finally, six weeks later, they brought in a porta potty. Uh, it no. was white, um, and it said hers on it. So you know that's progress. I, <laughs> I know. Um, so you know there were a lot of obstacles when you're the first. Um, there, that was you know talk about a you're not welcome sign. But I didn't let that hold me back because I wasn't going to let them take away my dream just for a bathroom. Forget about it. I'm going to do the work. I was there because I wanted to do that work. What did your parents tell you you could do? My parents. Okay, so um, all my grandparents were from Mexico. uh, So I grew up in a um, Spanish-speaking household. And my father was very traditional. So my mom, an immigrant, um, has high beliefs for me. Um, My father, not so keen on me being as independent. Um, And I discovered math, even though I I really liked math, but I discovered that when, you you know... um, Math takes you on your other side of your brain. So when you're emotional, math helps you calm down. And um, so I had a lot of struggles with my father because he was very, very traditional. And I was trying to really live out my life potential, which sometimes clashed with him. And so I would always go back to my room and do math problems. So it kind of does tell you a degree of my relationship with my father that I got good enough math that I became a rocket scientist good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, Jedida, what did your parents tell you you could be? Oh, my parents told me I could be anything I wanted. My mom used to say all the time, uh, if, if somebody else did it, so can't, like, why can't you? Like, what is so special about them that you can't do it? And I was always like, yeah, that sounds good. They can do it, I can do it. Let's go. Um, and actually, that was really incredibly important to me, right? Um, because I walked into the world, that is to say, you know, outside of the knowledge that my house was the only place, uh, into the world thinking, well, if you're standing there doing it, there's no reason I can't do it, so let's go. Um, 
they also were really committed to us figuring out what we wanted to do. So my sister um, is 19 months older than I am, and she loves everything. She does conflict resolution. She does psychology. She does mechanical engineering, all these kinds of things. And our parents were just like, okay, just go do the thing um, that you like. I came into it the same way. I think the nice guy is the most beautiful thing ever. Um, And I wanted to know more about it. I still want to go to space, so if this helps me get any closer to that... I said heaven. I didn't say space. You got to go through. I'm just saying. um, Yeah, so they they were really encouraging to us in that way. Um, And I I think in terms of barriers, that's a conversation that one could go on and on about. Indeed. Um, I think the answer that I want to give, and you'll probably push me on this, but the answer I want to give is that my hope is that what we do is make it so that you don't have to be brave to do the work, that you can just do it because you love it. Um, because I, you know, I have similar stories. I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty present in a space. You know that I'm there. Uh, and so I tend not to shirk back when people push on me. I tend to push back. Uh, and, and I think that has helped me be successful, but I don't want it to have to be that way. Um, I'm, I'm tempted, and I'm going to uh, quote Shirley Chisholm, the great African-American yep. congresswoman from Brooklyn, uh, who said she felt that she had more uh, problems because she was female than because she was black. That, that, the, that the bigger obstacles were from gender and not from race. I think, uh, I love Shirley Chisholm. She is a mag- she was a magical human. Yep. Um, but I think the, my answer would be different. I think given what we know about um, uh, systems of oppression and axes of power, uh, that it's almost impossible to disentangle uh, the effect that I have on the world based on me being a black person and me based on being a black woman, and in fact, uh, separa- or being a woman and, and separating the two it sort of does violence to my identity. Um, I will give the example... Um, I will give the example, though, because there has been research done on this now to show that, you know, the intersectionality, the way that identities intersect and the oppression that comes from them, all has has a part to play. I was at a professional conference, the American Astronomical Society, that's my professional conference, um, and I was standing by the food because I was hungry. Uh, and I was getting food, and I had my name tag, because, you know, you're at a conference, you have to wear the badge. I was wearing the badge, but I was getting food, and somebody came up to ask me what was on the menu. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. First of all, <laughs> uh, second of all, not my job badge, but that, that is an example of the fact that, like, it was the combination of being both black and a woman, right? Like, it's not likely that you would say that to a white woman, right? And, yep. it's, and it's certainly not likely that you say it to a man, right? No question. So it's the intersection of those identities um, that, that I find to be more a compelling argument than trying to disentangle a, pers- a particular Do you direction. think we're more aware of that today than we have been in the past? Who is we? Good question. <laughs> Is there any more awareness of that today than there has been in the past? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Common ground. I like yes, common yes. ground. Okay. Yes. No, I think, I think there, to, be, to be honest, I, no, I'm being honest, but to I be know. sincere, uh, I'm doing that too. You know the word I'm trying to say that won't come <laughs> out. To be serious. Right. Um, I do feel like we've made progress, but there is just a lot of progress to make. Left to do. Um, just finishing up on the childhood thing, I... I, I don't, you know, clearly you had parents who were going to let you do whatever you wanted to do. I wonder... Uh, that's not true. <laughs> not true. Oh, 
Let's I mean, hear definitely it. professionally, but no, there oh, were, yeah, that's there were lots meant. of rules. I meant professionally. <laughs> I yeah. meant professionally. Were there... Like, I definitely couldn't go to bed without cleaning my room. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Despite often trying to persuade my parents that I would get up early the next morning. That was never a winnable argument. Well, I, I often find in conversations like this that I, I always want to say, just pick good parents and you'll be okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, I yeah. mean, I sure did. And... and um, was there, I, I want to ask who your role models were. I'm, I'm going to skip right by letting you say your parents were your role models, but go outside that, that space. Who, whom, to whom did you look to say, I, might, I could do something like that? Well, my grandmother was really my North Star, and she remains so uh, to this day. She passed away almost eight years ago, and I think about her every day. Um, my mother's mother lived with us uh, later in life and I uh, spoke to her every single day and I tried to see her as often as possible. What was it about her? She had a life uh, that I couldn't imagine because of the choices that she had made and the choices my parents had made. She was born to unwed teenage parents. Her mother was 15, her dad was 17. Uh, she was abandoned multiple times throughout her childhood. Her earliest memory was being three and her parents walking out the door and giving her a meal card to the cafeteria down the street and telling her if she needed anything to go to the local fire department. Um, and they wouldn't come back for two weeks. Uh, and finally, kind of, they gave up at eight, um, put her and her then little sister on a train by themselves from Chicago to Los Angeles, which at the time was a two-day train ride. Wow. And she always said she'd never been more terrified in her life than when she had to switch trains in Phoenix. Um, and like clutching her little sister's hand. Lived with her grandparents. Um, they were also not particularly loving or competent or capable. And before she turned 14, her grandparents told her like, you're an adult, you have to go get a job and support yourself. So she moved in with another family. Um, and was, as she, as she called herself, a mother's helper. Today, what we would call nanny if we had child mm -hmm. labor mm -hmm. that was legal, which we do, but only on tobacco farms, but that's a different conversation. Mm. Um, and she got up really early in the morning because um, she also was expected to do what she called like house cleaning duties, which we would call a maid today. Did that, got the kids ready for school, went to school herself, came back, like helped the kids with their homework, got the kids ready for bed, stayed up late doing her homework, like got up and did it all over again. Um, and she graduated with honors. Wow. And even though she couldn't afford to go to college, um, then she went back to college in her 50s. Aww. And her favorite class, um, her favorite classes were all uh, science-based. Yeah. So she <laughs> loved biology. She loved psychology. She loved kind of the sciences writ, writ like writ broad and I um and I knew my grandmother when I was a little girl as the most like warm and loving and cuddly and supportive and fun person I mean she's the one who I remember being a little girl that we had you know like different colors of water and we would put the flowers in and we would watch the leaves change color and it was just like I thought she was a magician because she was <laughs> and then as I got a little bit older I realized she had had to imagine the life that she wanted because she had no role models. Mm -hmm. right. And she gave that same sense of, of possibility and just bountiful love to her children. 
Um, and I do think if I can kind of remove myself from the personal side of it, you know, just kind of it is a remarkable arc that she was born uh, before women could vote in our country and she lived long enough to vote for her daughter for president. Wow. Right. So she, um, you know, she was and kind of eternally will be up from the heavens and the stars, you know, my role model. And just the last thing I'll say, because it is pertinent to kind of Sally Ride, um, I didn't realize until I got much older how purposeful my mother and my grandmother both were about exposing me to women role models. Like, I remember going with my mom as a little girl to hear Geraldine Ferraro speak. I remember uh, my mom... Geraldine Ferraro was the first American woman to run on a major party ticket as, as vice, vice president, president in 1984. 1984. So I was four years old, and I remember going to see her speak with my mom. I remember, like, whenever Shirley Chilson was on television, my mom would, like, grab me, we would sit down, we would watch her. I remember how excited my mom was when Sally Ride like went to space, and I remember watching her you know, testify after the Challenger tragedies and having these conversations with my mom. I remember um, learning about Helen Keller with my grandmother. Like it just, and I didn't understand what they were doing until I was old enough to recognize it because of what they'd helped build into me. And I think about that now a lot as a mother of both a daughter and a son and whatever this little person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So eloquent. Um, just, just a, a, a button that did, did your grandmother tell you all these things or did you have to find it out from your mother? A combination, a combination. My grandmother got very uh, sick uh, my senior year at Stanford and I had, um, I'd had one, set of plans for my summer after I graduated from college. My grandmother got sick and those no longer mattered and I moved home and, and moved into the hospital with her. Um, and because my mom was a new senator and my uncles lived in Florida at the time and like I was the one you were who a- actually had the privilege of being with her in those right. moments. Right. Um, and like, what a tremendous gift. And so we had these long conversations about her life um, and thankfully... Uh, she rebounded from that and, and would live kind of many years beyond that. Um, and I just, like every day, would call my mother and be like, did you know? <laughs> my mother said, yes, and I'm so glad that you're hearing kind of this part of your grandmother's story. Isn't she even more remarkable than you thought she was? And I would say yes. And like, so I, so I have to ex- like every day. Basically. I have to expand it. You not only pick your parents, you have to pick your grandparents too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, that's a very, yeah. touch- that's very well touching. Done. Well done. But Lynn, that's a, that's this pick your, pick your people, I think it's an important thing, right? We say it sort of in jest, but there is a power in that, that like, let's say you don't have magical parents, like we all were gifted and privileged to have. You can still pick your people. Yeah. You can still pick the Absolutely. folks that like breathe into you life. And you can, you can sort of, as much as you can with as much agency as you have, lean away from folks that are sucking the air out of you. And I think How do you really- do that? Oh. You're, you're, a, you're now a 12-year-old yeah. or an 8-year-old. And I don't know if you, you don't- can do it at, at 12, but I mean, to, like my grandmother left Southern California, moved back to Chicago, and like closed the door on that part of her life. Like why on earth would she have still had this toxicity around her? So you may not be able to do it at 12, but I certainly think 
you know, this is a crucial point around our own agency and our own empowerment of, of who we choose to surround ourselves with, like on our journey and whose journeys we want to be part of. Exactly. And who we want to be part of our journey. And I think that's what I'm saying that what you do does depend on how old you are and what you can do. But even at 12, there are ways to, to give yourself space or at least in your mind, counteract what you're hearing that's negative with what you're hearing that's positive, right? So when I'm, when I'm often mentoring young girls, I'll say, or girls of any, anyone I mentor, I say this to, um, if you are thinking about trying to build confidence, write down everything you do that you accomplished that you did well. Because if I asked you what's the last thing you did really well, it'd take you three to five seconds to come up with it. But if I asked you the last thing you messed up, it's the top thing on your mind, right? So like figuring out a way to counteract negative energy with positive energy is something that you can do so that even if you don't have the agency to take yourself out of a situation, that in your mind when someone says to you, oh, well, you can't do that because you're um, a black girl from Virginia and why would you want to be an astrophysicist? Do you even know how to spell that word? I can be like, yeah, you said that, but I don't know you. My mom said, you know, <laughs> this thing over here, right? So even that agency is, is I think, important. But the larger point really is that you can build that community over time. It does not have to come from your house. You can build folks into it. It can be a teacher. It can be a friend. It can be an aunt or an uncle. It can be whoever. It can be someone that you've seen on TV. Like, you can build the, the sort of, like, mentoring map that you need to get there. It doesn't have to... Like, you, you're not... Um, you're not... Your ship's not sunk because you weren't born with the right parent. Right. Brilliant. And, and, and math. Right? And math. Right. I... I grew, up, I grew up in a really small town. Um, it was a really small town in the desert. And there weren't those kind of examples, but there were uh, of live people around me, but there were books. And um, I love Claire Barton and Florence Nightingale. And I read everything about them so much that people thought I was, wanted to be a nurse. But actually, what I wanted was they were both systems thinkers. So Claire Barton, she created the first aid kit, and then she also figured out how to get supplies directly to the battlefield in the Civil War. But because she was a woman, she was written as the angel of the battlefield rather than a systems giant. Um, <laughs> and then Florence Nightingale, I never knew until I was older and could synthesize it, but I read everything. I was just like so fascinated by her. And it turns out that um, Florence Nightingale she really changed even medicine to this day. The triage system that we use, she created it. And she was involved in the war, and she was seeing the Boer War, and she was seeing so many people died. And she said, if we change the system, less people will die. And no one believed her, because she was a female. And so then she, she did the math. And back then, women weren't trained in math. But she had taught herself, and she had um, been trained also by her dad. And so she did this math, the statistics, and she showed that if you implemented her system, fewer people would die, and they ignored her. And then she had this great leap of innovation and creativity. And she said, imagine if I created a picture. And today, it's no big deal for us to like visually represent data. But that was a, an amazing leap of faith. And so what she did is she hired a cartographer because she figured who knows how to make you know, visualizations, a map maker, and so um, he, she worked with him, and they visually represented this information. And then you could immediately see if you implemented her system, fewer people would die. So they actually implemented it. So if you're sideway, just a little segue here, you ever wonder why they're called charts like on Excel? 
It's because what do you call something if you're working with a photographer and you're doing a visualization? What did they create? They created charts. So that's why we call charts, you know, uh, visualizations that you're using on Excel or whatever. But, but for me, that's like, wow, she was a systems thinker. She used math to solve problems. And she used math, more importantly, to make the world a better place. And I think so often, is, women, we don't want to learn math or science just to learn it for the technology. We want to apply it to help people. We want to apply it to you know, help cure cancer, create a prosthetic arm to you know, uh, one Girl Scout I met, she wanted to learn about cybersecurity. Why did she want to learn about cybersecurity? Because she knows that our tractors and combines and our agricultural equipment now, doesn't even, they don't even have steering wheels, right? They're controlled by the internet of things. And what happens if that gets hacked? What happens to the sustainability of our food supply? That's what she wanted to know. She wants to know, I want to know about cybersecurity because I want right. to protect our food supply. There's and, a practical part of it. Well, yeah. and wanting to make the world a better place and to help people. The big, big draw for women. Well, can I, and can I just, I, yeah. I also love, love, love Florence Nightingale. She's one of my like all-time public health heroes. Um, and you can see her original data visualizations on the British Library online. So if you want to see the original work that she did to chart why if you had clean blankets, you would save this many soldiers' lives, and if you appropriately triaged people, you would save this many, and if you washed your hands, which was pretty radical at the time, you could prevent this many infections, um, you can actually see her original... Um, they were first called pictographs, and then they were called charts, and you can see them uh, online at the British Library. You don't even have to go to England. So <laughs> if, you, if you remember nothing else about tonight, hopefully you remember <laughs> Florence we Smith. all have to be wary of our own time zones and not complacent yeah. and what we're going to do to try to bring more people forward with us and maybe Florence Nightingale. Oh, there's, lots of, there's lots of things we can get yeah. them to remember. We got lots of, we got a lot of good places to go. Um, one of the things, all the things you're talking about, you talk about Florence Nightingale and Clara Barton, who essentially worked on their own to make things happen. Um, Sally Ride, uh, when she was chosen as the first American woman to fly, always included the other women astronauts in big decisions, like what to take in what was called the personal preference kit, which was cosmetics and stuff like that. Silly stuff. Uh, but, but Sally was very smart. She understood that these were not decisions she could make on her own. She needed the teamwork, and she needed to get the group, the other five women, with her on this. So I guess my question for you is, um, do you have teams? Do you find that working with a group, particularly other women, and, or perhaps not, has it made a difference, and does it bring strength to this struggle? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Example? Any examples where you've brought somebody in to do something? I mean, I, I, there are many. I think that's why we're all pausing. It's like, which yeah. group do we talk about in this moment? Um, yeah. So I think, I think it's an African proverb. It's like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a group or something like that. I can't remember what it, what it said, but th that sentiment is true. So, you know, I am a new professor at Dartmouth College. I really enjoy that job, but I also do a lot of work on STEM equity. I create my own not-for-profit that does that work, and the team that builds that organization, which is called Vanguard STEM, is a, is a, a team of black women uh, that we just decided we wanted to see the world 
be different. We wanted women of color and non-binary people of color to be included in the STEM dialogue. We wanted STEM to be used as a point for social justice, and we felt like we knew what what to do. <laughs> so we just got started and got to work, and all of them are postdocs so, um, or graduate students in or uh, professionals in STEM, right? So they, we are working to actively build what we want to see in STEM so that conversations about culture, about um, equity, about um, um, justice are also in the STEM sphere. Is it about... Um uh, in Sally's case, it was partly about safety and numbers, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor felt when they finally had two of them. There, there was a lot of talk about safety and numbers. Do you, is it about safety and numbers, or is it about involving more people and building a new community? It's about all of it. It's about the fact that uh, none of us are superhuman, and so we are all going to need to take a rest, just like in the practical terms. Like, we can't all take it on our shoulder at every moment of every time, so we tag in and tag out. Right now, they're running the organization because here I am trying to do the things that I'm doing, right? Um, so there is safety numbers. There's sustainability in systems um, and in, in building structures. Uh, but it is also our our core belief is that bringing people in, activating people around the things that they are passionate about um, and making space for them to make their own voice heard or their own effort heard if they are not able with the voice um, is a part of justice. That, that's, what, that's what justice looks like. Um, so it's both. It's, it's both a practical and perhaps a political choice. Is there, is there any aspect of involving other women that has ever backfired? Are there situations where, um, I mean, thinking is changing. We're going through such an extraordinary time. And there was a time, um, certainly in my generation, when we were supposed to look to the guys for support and not look to other women. That has clearly made a big difference, made a a, a complete um, uh, turnaround at this point. Um, I guess maybe another way I'd ask the question is, why, why do you think all women are not in support of all women. Why do you think we have some women who are anti-feminist, if you will, who don't want to use the word feminist, who are afraid of, of women's issues? Any insights into that? I, th- I find it a, a very, there were women, just for history, um, the largest, uh, uh, more women opposed the right to vote in the 19th century than supported it. There were women who were terrified of getting the right to vote. They didn't want to be taken down from the pedestal. They wanted their husbands to make these choices. And that, that's then. What are you seeing today in the same way, if at all? I mean, I think that that still exists, right? Proximity to power is a very intoxicating thing. And the closer you are to power, the more likely you are to not want to see it change because you're very close to it, right? So it, it feels good to be in that, in that place. I think people are often disincentivized um, to fight systems that may endanger their privilege. Uh, But furthermore, I think it's also dangerous to to just assume that because women are women, they're down for the cause. That's not true because it's a system that we live in. It's not individuals necessarily consciously making a choice. They are, we are all living in a system, right? And so some people are like, this doesn't feel right. Let me investigate, right? And they go and they do the thing that you said that I can't remember right at this moment. Build a first aid kit. There it is. Um, or they, they try to dis- 
tear down the problem and figure out something else. Other people never know. It's like the era they live in and are moving through. Uh, so I don't think it's true that just because women are women that they are innately um, gifted in support with insight of all yeah, to, to what well, is actually happening. And, and I think, um, you know, I guess going back to your kind of first metaphor of the clock, like we are not that far from some pretty profound um, milestones in our country, right? I mean, Roe v. Wade was 1973, right? It wasn't until after that that a woman anywhere in America could have a credit card in her own name, a bank account in her own name, or a mortgage in her own name, right? It wasn't also until the 1970s in many places where women could adopt as single women, Right, so these were, like, there are a lot of people here today who, like, in this room today who were alive during those changes, which also means they were alive before those changes, right? So I think the proximity to PowerPoint is hugely important and particularly one that, as white women, we have to reckon with every day. I also think we have to have an understanding of the historical context and that kind of what we grew up in is very different than what even a generation before us grew up in, in terms of not only what was expected, but what was legal. Yeah. yeah. We had that conversation earlier in the, in the green room. You know, some of the best conversations happen in the green room. I'm trying, I'll bring them all out here as much as I can, but that, that you could not get a mortgage in your own name or a credit card. I mean, these were all, these were all things that, that um, many of us in this room certainly lived through, and there have been changes. Um, and I think that, but see, that brings me back to what I said before, which is, I think this is a special moment. I think the consciousness of young women, and I think um, from the enthusiasm I saw earlier from some of the Girl Scouts who came up during the, the book signing, and the young, the young women, the girls who are coming up and, and getting your children's books, um, there is an energy that I have not seen in a long time. And I think it's very exciting. Um, and, and I'll come back to that in a bit, but let me change it here radically and ask, what's the role of boys and men in all of this? What, what do we ask them to do? What do we tell them to do? What do we hope they will do? Um, I, don't know what, I don't even know what the right verb is anymore, but... <laughs> Sylvia, you're, you're the head of the Girl Scouts. That's right. Okay, so... We're uh, a girl-only organization. You're girls. Okay. Right. Uh, what do you tell your girls about boys? Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> we focus on girls, and we focus on girl potential. Um, so we're very happy when uh, parents, you know, uh, when moms, dads, uh, uh, caring adults come and, and support their daughters. We're just so delighted with how many fathers uh, or men who want to be supportive of Girl Scouts. We even have a T-shirt that says, Man Enough to Be a Girl Scout. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we really work on making sure that girls have the courage and confidence in their voice and they have the skills so to create the positive changes that they want to see in the world around them. And we work with, with children, right? We work with kids, 5 to 18. And in that girl-only space, they can really uh, attempt, fail, succeed. They can keep trying over and over, and that's okay. You know, they know that they're going to get called on, that they're going to get a chance to try something, which isn't the case in a classroom frequently. Right. Girls are continually overlooked, or they're said, oh, you tried something, you weren't good at it the first time, you won't get another try 
crack at that. And we know that when they get that confidence that they can do something, that they can go out into the co-ed world and really succeed. But what's also important is to help them realize the importance of their voice and their worldview. And I'm just so proud of the fact that in Girl Scouts, um, you know, almost every year, at least three state laws are changed by girls in high school that are Girl Scouts. I mean, so to me, that's really them using their, their voice to make a difference in the world, whether it's making sure that uh, developmentally disabled adults get more you know, funding in Kansas or recently in New Hampshire, the state laws changed against uh, child marriage. Uh, so really getting them to realize how important they are and that their voice matters. So it isn't in terms of a reflection of men, but really in terms of who they are, perfect as they are. <laughs> so what, so what, what about dads? What, what advice do you give, would you give to dads raising whether it's a girl or a boy? Well, you know, it's interesting. And in, um, we just did a, a study called Decoding Digital Girls. And at Girl Scouts, we're the only uh, organization that studies girls' leadership. And our research that we put out is free. It's caught, you know downloaded by the United Nations. It's downloaded all over the world, as well as in the U.S. And in Decoding the Digital Girls, one of the things that we discovered is that parents... When they have kids that are both interested in technology, they see their daughter on the iPad, she's working on Netflix, she's doing all this stuff, they see their sons, they will always ask their son to be the technical help in the home. That's like in a classroom, the teacher only asking the boys, right? And so they reinforce gender stereotypes. And I was recently at the Air Force Academy, and I was making that point, and this general came up to me afterwards, and he said, gosh, you got me in a moment of self-reflection, because he said, recently, you know, I was trying to download something on Netflix, and it kept, that little spinning arrow kept going, wheel kept going, and he said, my daughter was right there, and I didn't ask her, and he said, believe me, I know she can download anything she wants, (laughs) and he said, why didn't I ask her, but what did I do? I got up, found my son, and had him come fix it. And he said, my daughter could have done that. But those biases are there. So I was so glad that he had that moment of understanding and reflection. Do you think it changed anything for the future? For him, it did. Okay. You could tell that it really did. It we made used an to say, We used to say in the 70s that the best feminists were men with daughters. Hmm. Because they understood what, what they were faced. But you shouldn't have to have a daughter. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it kills me every time someone says, like, well, as the father right. of a girl. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Like, no, it should just be as a decent human being. Right. Like, this is, <laughs> this is the right thing to do. You know, I, you know, my, my kids are very young. Um, they're four and two. And so we talk about, particularly with my daughter, um, kind of what, what her points of curiosity are in the world or, or where I do worry the world may intersect with her experience. So she's obsessed with sharks. She's obsessed with sharks. Truly, her favorite book right now is the Encyclopedia of Sharks. <laughs> I can tell you more about lemon sharks, which I didn't even know existed like two weeks ago than I had ever imagined I might know. Um, and yet, like, what a gift for me that my daughter now is helping expand my world uh, and thankfully, because of her obsession with sharks and her outrage that, you know, 100 million sharks are killed every year, you know, 75% of them because of their fins, though increasing numbers are choking on plastic and other things, that's how then we talk about recycling, and then that's how we talk about global warming and kind of the climate crisis, you know, or I do kind of bring up 
painful, but I think important conversations, even though she's four, about family separations and ICE because she rides the subway and the bus in New York City and I sometimes get on gets on the subway and the bus and I don't want her to be um, unprepared and I want her to you know be resilient even at her age. And with my son, it's different because he is so young, but you know, listening to this conversation and one of the things my husband and I have already talked about, and I should say my husband was a Planned Parenthood Garden High School. So, I mean... You also do get to pick your life partners, hopefully. Um, and I would argue that's pretty important, too. Um, hi, Tam, for life partner. <laughs> um, but one of the things we talked about, actually, is child marriage. Because you know, in 48 states in our country, it's still legal for children to get married, uh, including here in California. So if this outrages you, like write to your local state legislature and your governor. Um, and in some states, there's no minimum age, and in some states... You know, like Massachusetts, it's 12. Wow. So, and I think that pretty clearly says we don't value the lives of girls. Um, And it's also uh, horrific because um, you can get married before you can get a divorce. Mm -hmm. You have to be 18 to enter into a legal contract. So a lot of girls who are um, forced or persuaded to marry, and there have been at least 150,000, like since 2000, that we have good records for, um, actually can't get divorced because they can't enter into an enforceable contract. They also often can't find shelter because uh, shelters don't want the liability of having an unaccompanied minor. Right? So there's lots of things that are deeply painful about this issue. And yet because it is about children and because I think it, the inequities and the injustices are so stark and because it really does not discriminate on kind of race or religious lines, like this is a problem across our country um, in all states where it's legal. My husband and I have talked about how, like, when our kids are a little bit older, as shocking as it may be, like, this may be a good place to start to have conversations about gender and justice and why we need both our daughter and our son and future child you know, to care about this. And if they care about kind of children's rights and they think this is wrong, Hopefully that helps them engage in other things that they think are wrong. Start nice and young. Well, it's never too early. Never too early. It's never too late either, right? It's like never I don't too think late. it's necessary to say, oh, well, we have to start with little boys as if grown men are, mm-hmm. you know, ineligible for change. Unteachable. Just saying. There's always uh, a teachable moment. So, so there's a lot of talk going around now uh, in terms of women's issues and, and, and moving forward about anger. Um, uh, Rebecca Traister's book, uh, 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 Good and Mad, a uh, lot of talk about anger, um, how women's anger is necessary for social and political change. I'm wondering how you feel about that. Is this, is it, um, I, I, I get the sense from you, ch- well, I won't, I won't impose my, what I'm, what I'm seeing in you, but do you think anger is necessary for change? Do you have to get really angry before you move forward, um, and this probably the the you know group sub A under this is: Do women really have to be likable? Hmm. I know, I know. It's an awful line, um, and you know what I'm talking about. That that if we don't smile enough, and if we and 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 women's voices are 
are, are shrill and men's voices are just loud and, and we're the ones who are aggressive and they're ambitious. I mean, these things haven't changed all that much. It's still coming up. Um, I just I, I just wonder about anger. Sylvia, do you do you deal with anger with, with the Girl Scouts at all or what do you think? Uh, you know, I, I guess I would reframe it a little bit differently. Um, I don't always think about um, a situation of anger and bravery. I think of it as if you're pre- if you're prepared, if you know what you're up against, and you've done the preparation, um, you don't need as much anger because you know what to do. I think sometimes if you don't know what to do, anger finally gets you that emotion. So you finally say, "I'm going to figure out what I need to do and make it happen." But if you already um, have figured out or know how to make those things happen, you can then motivate yourself. I know in in my career a lot of times. Um, I didn't always look at it as anger. I just looked at it as a problem to be solved. And kind of like that bathroom example, but I'll tell you, a lot of times in my, my career, I mean, twice uh, in my career, I, um, they told me one, I was blowing out my sales numbers. After I did rocket science, I became an engineer, and then I became a tech exec, and, and I had a, a, an opportunity to be a salesperson, and I was doing really great, and I wanted to go into international because uh, that those that was really taking off. And I said, they wouldn't let me, and, and, and I said, well, how about even international Latin America? Porque hablo español. I speak Spanish. <laughs> Come on. And they say they wouldn't accept women as salespeople. So on my own dime... I went and I said, what country do you think is the hardest? And they named the country, bought my own ticket, went there, got letters of recommendation, recommendations from business leaders, came back, you know, and I solved the problem because they said, you're not going to be able to do that. And I'm like, okay, you're just operating from your sense, but I've got real data that shows that people will work with me. And so I got the job. Um, <laughs> and I, I actually... I had to do that again and another time because I wanted then to work in Asia, um, in, in, in the Pacific region, and they told me, okay, you're doing great in Latin America, but Asians will never take you. They'll never accept you. Again, bought a ticket on my own, met with business leaders, you know, got the information, and then boom, um, came back with those letters of recommendation and was hired again. And, you know, for me, I don't remember being angry. I just remembered, how do you solve the problem? And, you know, how, do, how could I prepare myself enough so I could solve the problem and move, and, and move ahead? But it's, I think that the thing we have to keep in mind here is that, like, it is your individual victory, which is super important and critical in your own life, doesn't change the systems that make it so that the next person that comes behind you that may be a woman is going to face that exact same Connection, right? So, so you're saying one one person who breaks through doesn't make it easier for the next person. I may be saying that too, but what I'm saying right <laughs> now is because I think that that, that is, has nuance that I, I don't want to glibly answer. Um, but what I am saying is that when you're talking about anger, um, that's again one of the places where I think about how women are read differently based yep. on the bodies yep. they inhabit. So, you know, black women have been fighting the angry black woman stereotype since there was stereotypes, right. um, which has a lot to do with our history and where we come from and what um, this country has as its original sin. So, you know, I, when I talk to women of color who are in STEM, they're constantly trying not to appear angry because everybody reads anger onto them when they're just being neutral, right? So when, when we're hearing these, these narratives about, is it time for women to get angry? 
we, ha- we have been read as angry just right. throughout time, right? right? So I, I think we have to be careful with, with these, who we're talking about when we say we and what the experiences are um, because there are, there, are, there are young women who are stunting themselves because, and, and smiling when they don't want to and doing all these things because they desperately, desperately don't want to be read as a stereotype and then, of course, unworthy of any, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. success or whatever. So or I'm being not taken seriously. Taken seriously, well, right? So I, know, think, I, I think we have to, we have but, to get back to that. But too. one of the things is when you get in a position of power and you've got to make a difference. And one of the things that I always did was I would then do um, a data analysis of the salaries of the men and women who worked for me. And I would tell you, it was really interesting. I, almost every woman, I had to increase her salary. Yeah. One woman went from in fact, HR came to me and said, you can't do this. And I said, but wait a minute. We analyzed what she did and compared it to what we're paying all these other men. And um, so her salary should be moved from, get this, 35000 to $105,000, wow. right? Wow. They said, can you do it in two steps? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know... I've, you know, I make sure that we maintain that mentality uh, throughout. And, you know, at um, Girl Scouts, one of the first things I did was we um, went from six weeks maternity leave to three months paid maternity and paternity. uh, Because I think it's so important when you're in the position, you make a difference. Right. and the other thing is, you know, one, one of the things that we're doing is now we're asking all of our suppliers, you know, at Girl Scouts, we're the largest independent female organization in the world. Um, and so what we're asking is our suppliers is, our big suppliers, same job, same pay, and 30% female leadership. And if you're not there today, you've got to make a commitment and sign a, pl- a pledge to us that you're going to be that way by, you know, d- different levels, but no later than 2030. And for STEM, STEM fields, that's a big leap for them. But it's once you get there, make sure you have the door of opportunity as open as possible. Absolutely. Um, it's just so important. And, you know, um, which is really a function of leadership. Right. And yeah, that's okay. what a leader can do. Right. Right. Um, I want, while we're on this subject, I, I mentioned to Chelsea, I was going to ask her this. Um, I follow Chelsea on Twitter. If you don't, you should, um, because her, her thoughts are fascinating. And she does something that is absolutely astounding, which is being a public figure. Um, she gets not only um, good, good comments. I certainly don't, haven't seen them all. She gets a lot of nasty stuff. And she has a way of handling it that I think is utterly astonishing. Um, I'm going to give you two very quick examples. Um, She had done a tweet uh, calling out anti-Semitism, an incident, something had happened. The tweeter said, you should raise your child instead of calling out anti-Semitism on Twitter. Chelsea Clinton responds on Twitter, hi, Alexander. My children are thankfully asleep and have been for hours. I think we always have to call out anti-Semitic language and tropes. I feel that way particularly as a parent. Hope you have a good night. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have one more I want to read. Um, Let's see. Roseanne Barr, the TV lady, had tweeted, Chelsea Soros Clinton, implying that George Soros was somehow related to her. Chelsea responded, good morning, Roseanne. My given middle name is Victoria. I imagine George Soros' nephews are lovely people. I'm just not married to one. I am grateful for the important work open society does in the world. Have a great day. 
This to me is astounding. <laughs> and how do you do it? How do you, how do you take the awful stuff that comes at you and come back at it in such an extraordinarily kind, benign, and funny, and sharp way? Well, I think, um, and this may sound totally absurd or bonkers or both, but I, I mean this um, sincerely and seriously. <laughs> I think that my life um, kind of prepared me for the era of social media. Because I don't remember a time in my life uh, when my family and and me included weren't being attacked, um, often quite uh, viciously and, and personally. And so I remember, um, you know, when my dad ran in 1992, and it kind of became really amplified, and I had, you know. Rush Limbaugh and Saturday Night Live, ostensibly like two opposite ends of the political spectrum, um, both referring to me as a dog, because I was an awkward like 12-year-old kid. Unlike any other 12-year-old and, kid in the world. Um, and Rush Limbaugh you know, had a common kind of joke that he would say, like, you know, if Bill Clinton wins and then after my dad won, like, you know, you know, President-elect Clinton is taking not only his cat socks to the White House, but his dog, Chelsea. And Saturday Night Live had variations on that. And they were the kind of most notable, but this was not singular to the two of them. Um, and thankfully, I knew that was ludicrous, because, like, why were these adults, like, picking on a kid? And I knew that was definitely about them mm-hmm. and not about me, mm-hmm. and that something had not gone right in their lives. Um, and I, I am really grateful in some ways for those experiences. And I also had, you know, lots of experiences at school where kids would kind of say crazy things to me or like put me in a locker to see if like the state police would come. And it was just like kind of part of my day. And, um, and I also, um, the anti-choice movement has been quite um, virulent, uh, I think, kind of from the time it got animated in the late 1970s um, because race was no longer a sufficient motivator. Mm. So kind of taking away women's rights mm. uh, became kind of one of the main uh, kind of goalposts for um, a certain segment of our country. Um, and so I also, you know, my, as long as I can remember, would have people come up to me and say, like, you know, it, your parents clearly never wanted you to be born because they support a woman's right to choose. You know, don't you think you should have been aborted? And I'd be like, I'm six. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and so I share all that, not like, oh, woe is me, because I am like a white privileged person in America um, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. But just to say... Like, what happens online has always happened. It just, I think, has been easier. It's more concentrated. Well, I think it's been easier for more people uh, to unleash, unfortunately, the the brokenness and the hate that has always been there. Um, I think also, like, online, we've seen some really remarkable senses of community and solidarity and and purpose be amplified and, and driven forward. Um, and so for a long time, 
I ignored the kind of online meanness. Um, I, I can't ignore it in person because when someone comes up to me, like I'm standing on the subway platform and they're like, you know, I could push you under the subway and like your devil spawn of a family would die with you. I'm like, oh, please don't do that today, right? It's Thursday. Like, it's just like not a, it's like not a good day to die. Um, you know, or like people come up to me and say like, you know, I wish you died in Benghazi. And I would say like, it's just a tragedy that anyone ever dies on the battlefield. Like, like cause what else do you say when people say things yeah. like that to you? So I'd engage with it in person, but I ignored it online. And then I realized that kind of, at least for me, I, I think the don't feed the trolls wasn't working because I think darkness creates a vacuum. And I believe that those of us who have platforms have a responsibility to use them, partly to try to give away our privilege, partly to try to bring other people with us, mm-hmm. and partly to try to show particularly, I think, girls and young women um, that there are other, there are other ways than ignoring the trolls that can still hopefully be productive and positive and generative um, because we know that a disproportionate amount of online abuse targets girls and young women um, and so I did start to respond to some of them and I can't respond to a lot of them and I think probably whole months go by when I don't respond to any of them because that probably wouldn't be a healthy place for me to dwell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's important to shine a light, partly so it's visible, um, and, and partly to say, like, kind of what I've tar- taken to calling in my own kind of head and heart, like, radical kindness is a possibility. Like, we don't have to be demeaned by the demeaning language that other people are using toward us and we don't have to ignore it if that doesn't feel right or comfortable you know we can respond with hopefully something that is um authentic to who we are and um and brimming hopefully with kindness but also is not stepping back well it's quite brilliant and i think radical kindness is something we can all take away uh it's wonderful Uh, Let me move on to something else. Um, Mixing up the roles. Sally Ride was a scientist, um, but she was selected for NASA in part, uh, certainly according to my research, um, because of her tennis career. Hand-eye coordination was very important in a lot of the stuff she did, and there were some other things as well. My question to the three of you is, you're a scientist, you've been a scientist, you're now doing something different, Chelsea, you're, you've done public service, you're writing, you're doing lots of things. What outside of your field has helped you do your field? What, let me start with you, Janai. What non-science thing has helped you to be the scientist you are? Well, stuff like this is a big part of it. I've always really enjoyed talking to people and having conversations. I've loved people since I was little. I just love humans. Uh, so <laughs> being in spaces like this and having conversations like this is very generative to me. Uh, so I've done that in various occasions from the time I was young and did forensics and did like public speaking to doing public speaking. You know, so that counts for me. Um, as I said, I built a not-for-profit um, because I wanted to see something different in the world. I really like running things. <laughs> uh, so I do that. Um, How does that help your science? Well, because 
science is not done in a vacuum and scientists aren't robots, right? And so we need to be able to think about different things. So, you know, going to a place that is with a bunch of really smart people where we're talking about things that don't relate to astrophysics but are just, like, problems to be solved allows my brain to churn. And, you know, neuroscience tells us that you need just, like, back processing to happen in order to make forward progress in your thoughts. So me co- t- talking over here to my friends that do water quality, you know, I'm just, I'm just talking because I'm no water quality because chemistry wasn't my thing. But it, when I get back to work, oh, right, because I was trying to figure out this thing about black holes and it co- sort of comes to mind. So like it helps my brain. Um, but mostly it's just that I am a whole person who has all kinds of interests and one of them happens to be supermassive black holes. But there are a number of them. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Sylvia, what, what outside of your field has helped you with your field? So um, um, I had the great good fortune. I was in Austin, and I had just finished being an entrepreneur. And a neighbor said, can you go and um, mentor a kid? And especially, can you do a reading program with them? And because you're bilingual, it's going to be really helpful. And in that process... Um, I discovered lots of things about myself. So one, the girl had really bad dental hygiene. And so I um, said, okay, even though I wasn't supposed to bring snacks, I brought snacks so that then we could brush our teeth. And, you know, I asked her to keep her toothbrush and next week we'd do the same thing. She didn't have, uh, the next week came, didn't have a toothbrush. So I went to Target, Target and bought a bunch <laughs> of toothbrushes and Every week she would forget her toothbrush. And finally, after six weeks, she remembered her toothbrush. And she said, I said, you remembered your toothbrush? And she goes, no, now everyone in my family has a toothbrush. And, and that was a pivotal moment because I had just finished this tech career, hadn't really done a lot of work in communities. I went to the teacher and I said, did you know this girl didn't even have a toothbrush? Right. And she said, do you have $35 because this kid broke his glasses and he needs them fixed? And she said, every kid has at the school, you know, it's a low-income school, has problems like that. And I could see that she was overwhelmed. And what I realized is teachers were really good at one-on-one or one-on-few, but when the numbers got big, that overwhelmed them. I'm a systems engineer. So, man, big numbers, I'm there. One-on-one, not so good. Okay, so what did I do? I then created grassroots mobilization campaigns, and I'm so proud that in just a few years, 25,000 toothbrushes, 25,000 play balls, a quarter of a million books. We started 10,000 home libraries. Um, And that's because scale... System, I can do that, right? Right. right. So um, the, doing that thing that was way outside my field allowed me, yeah, to realize scale is one of my superpowers. So specialization is important, but a little general knowledge helps as well. Yeah. Well, I think um, Jedi and I were talking about this earlier. Like as a child, I loved ballet so much. I mean, it was my great passion. By the time I was, you know, in kind of seventh grade, I was going like five times a week. By the time I was in ninth grade, I was going six times a week. I went to, I did all of my schoolwork in kind of the first six periods so I could leave school early to go um, to ballet. And I was good enough to always stay in my class, but I was never at the top of my class. I was never going to be great. I was never going to be able to be a professional dancer. And I learned so much from that whole kind of textured experience. I learned um, extraordinary amounts of time management because also, like, it wasn't the only extracurricular activity I wanted to do in high school. I wanted to be the editor of the yearbook, so I had to work hard toward that goal, and I 
you know, hope to be the head of the service club. So I had to work hard to that goal. And I think that that time management and balance and kind of understanding how to prioritize, which really I don't think would have happened without that catalyst of ballet, was really important to me. What also though was really important to me was to know that it was okay to love something that I wasn't going to ever excel at. Oh, what a good lesson. Because in school, like I worked hard and I did well. There was a correlation. Like I, wow, okay. Like I maybe haven't done calculus before, but I'm going to work hard and it's probably going to turn out like pretty good. In ballet, I was like, wow, I'm going to work hard and it's going to like, maybe I'm going to still get to come to ballet school next year and they're not going to counsel <laughs> me out. Um, and I think that was hugely important to me because now as an adult, like I'm so grateful for all the varied work I get to do with the Clinton Foundation. I teach at the Mammoth School of Public Health at Columbia. I'm a children's book writer. My most important part of my life now is being a mom by far. Um, and yet, like I still love to try new things. And I don't know if I would have the confidence to whether it was try a new recipe or my husband and I recently went to a potting studio and I was thinking about um, this earlier, kind of when I was watching Sylvia with the Girl Scouts, because I was thinking, like, I bet all of them would be better at pottery than I am at 39. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. But it doesn't me. matter, and I can uh. enjoy it and be present in a way that I think I know myself well enough to know that if I hadn't had kind of the discipline of enjoying something that I was never going to be particularly good at, and yet still to be able to value the joy and the joyfulness. And so I'm so thankful to ballet for all that it gave me, not only professionally, but in many ways spiritually. It's a wonderful lesson from all of you. Uh, I'm going to turn now to some questions from the audience that you submitted earlier. Um, and we'll go through as many of these as we can. Uh, let's see. Um, looking back... <laughs> What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Who wants to admit that they did something wrong when they were 20 and that they might be able to correct it now? Long pause. We can come back to this, ladies. Maybe I'll move on and we'll think well, about this. You know, no, actually, I, I do have an answer to that because, um, and I was thinking about this earlier when, when Sylvia was talking about all of the really like wonderful work that is happening at the Girl Scouts and also Jedi, what I think what clearly you're doing kind of with your organization given Vanguard's in its name of ensuring that um, girls, black girls are engaged in and then kept engaged in STEM. And that, you know, I was at Stanford kind of coincident with the kind of first big tech boom and I um, marveled and was so excited by the stories of my classmates who were kind of coming in and out of school because Stanford was incredibly supportive of um, entrepreneurship and students who kind of wanted to take time off whether or not they ever had a plan of coming back. Um, and I really wish I would have taken um, a coding class. I, and I wish that I could go back to my 20-year-old self and say, you know, not only take advantage of kind of your own curiosity and where it's driving you, like take advantage of the moment you're in and the place where you are. And I didn't even think to do that because I was so excited about 
the Middle East statistics and biology and history in the classes I was already taking, and I just wish I had recognized, no, I'm in a moment, and I should take advantage of that, and I'm in a place where I really can. Be present. It's never too late. Come yeah. on, back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me try to get to a few. Let me ask for some can short... Can I answer that one? Yes, you certainly can. I You've thought about that. it now for a I long have. time. I had to think about it. Uh, I would say that you're okay. You're to your okay. 20, you're talking to your uh, to 20... My, you're okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, because I feel like we, we build into our culture this idea that 20, 21, you are grown, you need to know the answer, you need to be actively pursuing that answer, and you need to make sure the answer is right. And I feel like to know that it's okay, like you will be fine, you can be yourself, it's gonna be fine, and there is a whole nother you that's gonna come. Take the pressure and, off, forget and the anxiety. Particularly to young people of color. In our exactly, You're, that's what I mean. Like, I was okay, I'm fine, it's good, we are golden. <laughs> <laughs> and still are. You're trying. And you're going to be an astrophysicist one day. <laughs> so great. <laughs> I want to try to get to, uh, we don't have much time. I want to get to as many of these as we can. Um, uh, ah, work family. We have imagined that. We have now been through more than an hour of a conversation about women and leadership. We have not talked about the work family balance, which is quite extraordinary because yeah. that used to be numbers one through 10. Uh, but, Quick, do we have, I know, I know it's not fair. Quick answer, work-family balance? I, I actually thought about this a lot, and this is something I talk a lot about with um, the young people that I mentor, because this is something I also wish that I would have uh, heard earlier, whether or not, and I, I think I know my younger self well enough to know, I may not have been able to internalize this, but I still wish I would have heard it. Um, in that when I was younger, um, I tried so hard to balance my day every day. Like every day I would have a list of things I wanted to accomplish, like professionally and personally, right? All the things I wanted to get done at work, all of the thank you notes I wanted to write, all the phone calls I wanted to make. I was going to try to read like five pages of a book before I went to bed. I mean, it was absurd, I almost said obscene. Um, maybe it was a little obscene, like the detailed list that I would make of what I expected of myself so I could have this like perfectly balanced day. Um, and when I became a parent, I still tried to do that, and I, and I just felt like I failed every day. Um, and so now I try to balance my life over longer pe periods of time, <laughs> basically, <laughs> where every day I prioritize my children, and every day I prioritize like whatever I need to get done you know, work-wise. Um, but now, like, I really only write thank you notes once a week, and I store them all up, and they get written on Sunday. And I no longer clean out my email inbox every day. This is good. I just heard from the audience. Right? Someone said that's what I do. It just doesn't happen <laughs> any longer. Like, it happens every week, and the urgent things I respond to. Right. But I don't clean out my Which email inbox Which is back to you're day. okay. Take it you're easy. Okay. And, and I'm so grateful to my children for forcing me to do that. Because I was thinking about what Jedediah said earlier about like what she helps um, kind of through her mentoring young people to understand around like being proud of what they have accomplished and that being top of mind instead of what they haven't accomplished because it's also shifted kind of what I think about at the end of the day because I think about it much more balanced of like okay like God I didn't get those like three point two one seven eight things checked off my list, I think, you know, I'm really grateful for the time I spent with my kids 
really grateful for what I got done at work today. And you know what? Like, I'm going to enjoy writing those thank you notes on Sunday. And it's just a totally different shift now that I have given myself permission to balance over not an eternity and not a year, but like a week. A little bit longer amount of time. Yeah. Makes very good sense. Um, Another question from the audience. What are the implications of more non-traditional views on gender? Has this changed your message at all? It's definitely changed ours. We, when I started Vanguard STEM, it was a response to a particular set of questions around young women of color uh, at the institution I was at that wanted to mentor while being mentored, and, and they ha- didn't see examples of themselves. And so I was like, I have friends. They do this stuff too, and I just brought them together. Um, so the organization actually started as conversations with um, emerging and established women of color in STEM. But over time, it became clear that um, women of color also have a privilege around being seen. Like when you hear that word, you know innately what it means, you know who I'm talking about, um, and you understand that population. Uh, But folks that are non-binary or um, exist along a spectrum are often completely left out of the conversation. And then add to that or incorporate into that being um, racialized or marginalized in other ways and you find that like whole sectors of folks are just rendered completely um, invisible and so we have in our organization just expanded our notion so that we're talking about women of color in STEM but we're also talking about non-binary folks of color in STEM because they they need representation too um, and to be heard so it certainly um, impacts our work Um, and I think one of the things that we have to think about when we're talking about systems and processes is that even the way we uh, measure or quantify folks impacts how we then represent them when we're telling the story about what's true and what's what's statistically relevant and st- statistically significant. So it short answer is yes, it informs what we do. So just keeping expanding the circle, expanding expanding what you're, the group that you're bringing in. Yeah, insofar as we can, because often the folks that you're like, oh, right, and them are the ones that everybody's like, oh, right, and them. Right, right. Um, so yeah, as much as we can. We think of it to, earlier. Yeah. Okay, this is, I'm sorry to say, the last one we're going to have time for. Um, Lightning round from each one of you. What is the one thing each one of us can do right now to increase equity for women? Oh, my gosh. Well, if you've got a daughter, get her in Girl Scouts. (laughs) (laughs) They grow up to be the leaders. So, you know, I would definitely say that. Okay, around. that's good. That's, that's fine. Charles? I mean, I think, I think there's a lot to that, um, given what the data says. Um, you know, I, I do um, want to pick up on what Jedediah just said in that, um, like, I, I loathe, like, colorblind and genderblind because that's not the world we live in. And I think those are kind of convenient and comfortable um, f- frames that are actually like pretty profound blinders. Um, So I would just ask all of us to be aware of um, the language that we use not only when we talk to one another, but even in our own inner dialogues about um, women and transgendered women, like in our lives or in our our kind of public sphere. and, and to always be mindful of what more each of us can do, um, because all of us can do more. You know, some of us can you know, help shift whole supply chains because they're the Girl Scouts, and you know, I'm sure there are like, multiple suppliers in the, that help sell the millions and millions and millions of boxes of cookies. 
um, of which like my husband buys more Thin Mints than I'm convinced any other person on the Thank planet. you. You're, Thank you. Um, <laughs> Thank you're you. welcome. <laughs> and, um, you know, but I, I mean that quite seriously. I think we all, we all start from different places and some of us have enormous platforms and, and leverage and privilege and yet we all really can do more. Um, and, and show your daughters and your sons powerful women. Um, you know, one of my favorite Sally Ride quotes is it's, you know, hard to imagine what you can't see, like make women visible to yourselves and, and to those around you and particularly to young people around you. And, um, if you need good examples, like please look on either end of the stage. Okay. One thing, Jedi. um, to remember that women are humans and in fact, we are all humans and that's the thing we share and we are, um, in a system that's broken and affords different rights and privileges to each person, but that like the brilliance is evenly spread among humans. And so if we could just keep in mind that humans are smart and creative and profound and broken and be- beautiful and all these things that like invariably you will bring in all these different groups of people. So foundationally remembering that like there is nothing about you, whoever you are, that is any innately better than them, whoever they are, um, does a lot to increase equity. Or, also or innately down. worse. Or innately worse. We're just all humans struggling to do the thing. So just like be a good human. Yeah. There you go. I can't think of a better way. I want to... Um, I want to end by thanking um, all of you, thanking this extraordinary panel. I would sum it up. I've just made some notes here and some good takeaways for all of us. Radical kindness. You're okay. Do more. Be human. And certainly become a Girl Scout. (laughs) Amen. Thank you very much. 